Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Let's pray real quick. Lord Jesus, even as we just read for us, um, your wisdom is like honey that satisfies us and reminds us of our hope. So Lord, as we look at just that, we uh, do not forget that the honey and the hope he speaks of is the honey and the hope we hold in your hand, in your word. So we pray today that you become sweet to us, that you satisfy us and you move us onward in mission. We pray this in your name, amen. So we are back in the book of Proverbs. Stephen shared with us from Romans last couple Sundays. We're in Proverbs 24. If you haven't turned there already, uh, you can do so. And this chapter is unique in the sense that the entire chapter of Proverbs 24 assumes a really present trial in the life of the wise son. And this is really important because trials challenge our ideals. It's easy to think we know the ideal situation to be prepared for it, but when trials come, we find how quickly things fall apart. Growing up and playing sports, and I know this is going to feel like shots fired to some of you. I don't mean it. It's just an observation. The best illustration of this is homeschool basketball players. Homeschool basketball players are some of the purest shooters you'll ever encounter in basketball. If it comes to a game that involves accuracy and shooting skill, like lightning or horse or around the world, you can't compete with them. And it's because, uh, I'm not saying you don't have friends, but I'm saying that you don't have a team to play with, and so it just revolves around shooting lots and lots of hoops in the backyard. And they have the purest form, and sometimes the most unique idiosyncrasies about it, and it's incredibly accurate. And yet, those homeschool players face a transition when they go onto a court because, turns out, there's other people. And those other people put their hand in your face and they put their body in your way and they push you when you're trying to shoot or get a rebound. And that's not to say that homeschool players don't adapt, but there's this immediate contention they have. They have to learn to adjust. All of the ideals they had when shooting on their own are immediately challenged in that moment. And this is true for any aspect of our life where we run into other people. It doesn't matter how diligently and how fervently, if you're an engaged couple, you pursue pre-marriage counseling. You can try to know every possible outcome of every possible uh, pothole you and your future spouse can run into. But when you get into marriage, your ideals will be challenged by the simplest trial, by competing shows you want to watch at the same time. In parenting, You could read the books, and yet the first time your child doesn't respond to the word no like you thought they would, (laughs) trial comes. Dating, coworkers, people who don't use their turn signals. We have plenty of ideals in our mind that when challenged by the presence of other people, we find ourselves to be flustered and caught off guard. Life, and certainly a life of following Jesus, would be a lot easier if it were just you. But that's not how life is in our broken world. But actually, as Christians, we know that that's not how God created us to be at all. 
God created us in Eden, in community, and in glory in the new heavens and the new earth. We live as a community of faith. This side of glory, therefore, we'll run into times where we encounter the burdens of those who are broken just like us. And when we encounter these conflicts with people where we become frustrated that it's not as easy to shoot as we once did, it's not as easy to love as we once thought, and it's not as easy to do what I want to do as we once thought it to be, what we find is that these can be annoying, frustrating, and sometimes crippling with fear. And in those moments of trial and tension, what's actually on display is not your interpersonal skills or your peacemaking potential. What's actually on display from a Christian perspective is the strength of your hope. Solomon today in Proverbs wants you to understand that following Jesus, loving God and loving others is great in theory, but it is really hard in practice. To equip us to handle this wisdom, he's going to fit us with a hope big enough to keep you in the game, a hope big enough to teach you how to adapt and remind you that this is worth it. And so we're going to be looking at Proverbs 24 over the next two weeks, and in each sermon, we are going to see a hope that Solomon gives us that's meant to to keep us engaged when we feel knocked off of our spot by those around us. And this week, we're going to see that the goodness of God moves us towards others, And next week, we're going to see that the justice of God gives us peace in the midst of others. But our big idea today is just that, that God's wisdom is a sweet gift which gives us peace and moves us towards others. And we're going to see this in three ways. We're going to see a contrast, a conviction, and a comfort. In verses 1 through 9, we're going to see a contrast between what is helpful and what is not. In verses 10 through 12, we're going to see a conviction which moves us forward. And then lastly, in verses 13 and 14, almost as an answer to the problem we've been introduced to, we see a comfort which gives us hope. So let's begin by reading our first portion of our passage today, which is Proverbs 24, 1 through 9. Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their hearts devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. By wisdom, a house is built, and by understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance, you can wage your war, and in an abundance of counselors, there is victory. Wisdom is too high for a fool. In the gate, he does not open his mouth. Whoever plans to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of folly is a sin, that is, it's offensive to God, but also, and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind, meaning it is offensive to men. And here we see our first point today, and that is a contrast between what is helpful and what is not. Solomon begins here by showing the way in which sin is personally dissatisfying and how wisdom is personally fulfilling. Uh, I don't know how many of you grew up in the 90s, but there was uh, the Wonder Ball. Do you guys remember this? It was a chocolate thing, and it, the, the little jingle was, oh, I wonder, oh, I wonder, ooh, oh, what's in a Wonder Ball? Who knows what surprises a Wonder Ball can bring? Anyway, uh, this is chocolate ball, and you don't know what's inside of it until you crack it open. And he's here hooking us with this appeal 
that we might see other people living life in such a way where we want what's in them. But what God does here is he is cracking open the shell and showing us what is inside. You might desire the fame and riches and and, uh, relational status that those who do evil have, but what is inside when you break it open? What is the fruit of all of this wonder? Violence and trouble. Wisdom, on the other hand, he holds it up and he breaks it open and what is inside, it is a house filled with all the precious and good riches you have always desired. Wisdom, which is given to us not based off of our skill or our competency, but wisdom that is ours because of our faithfulness to God, not only fills us and satisfies us personally with all of the things we desire wrongly in sin, But because of that filling, because of the rooms, because of the riches, it inevitably takes a filled person and moves them to bless those who are around them. It has a corporate effect. Look at verses five through nine, where we see this outward movement of the satisfaction of wisdom. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance, you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Wisdom is too high for a fool. In the gate, he does not open his mouth. Whoever plans to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. So did you see that contrast here? That's what Proverbs are. We looked at that way back in October when we started this. We said a proverb is, it just means a saying. It's a, it's a literary term. But the contrast the proverb paints with is not rhyme schemes like Dr. Seuss, but contrasts. And here we see the contrast. Those who rely on God's wisdom are made strong. They are equipped for the challenge of contact with the world. They are prepared for war. They are made ready and assured of victory. But how are they equipped by this? For by wise guidance, you can wage your war. In an abundance of counselors, there is victory. How do we become prepared to shoot when the hand is in our face? we have others who share God's wisdom with us, who help us, who care for us, who push us in the right directions. This is what the church is meant to be, a community that helps all of us not only know the ideals, but adjust to the realities of life in a broken world. The fool we see on the other hand in verse seven has nothing to offer anyone. There's no house brimming with good and precious goods In fact, that wisdom, the fruit of that, it says it's too tall for him, like your toddler trying to reach up to the cookie jar and only straining never to have, so is the fool without God's wisdom. Solomon has made the emptiness of the fool very clear throughout the book of Proverbs, specifically, if you remember Proverbs 14, verse seven. Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. It's not there. Just this week, I was at the Coke building, and Kurt, who is the mastermind to all of the knowledge, was meeting there with some HVAC guys. And no joke, Kurt looks at me and sees these guys coming. He says, I'm glad you're here for this conversation. Now, here's the thing. I have a degree in journalism and theology, which means I know just enough about construction. When the Bible says that Christ is our foundation, I can infer that's a good thing. That's where it ends. And so these guys started talking about all of these 
units and uh, freon and uh, ductwork and red iron. And what I did is I just nodded my head. I said, yeah, that's really good. And I realized that I had nothing to offer. We were playing with entirely different decks. Between the four of us that were there, there was one worldview that understood, and then there was me waiting for a homeschool basketball illustration. And, and, and that is what Solomon says here, the life of a fool. He says he ought to be quiet in the gate. For us, the gate is kind of a weird thing. For us, a gate means security, and it certainly meant that in the Old Testament. But the gate was also the place of public discourse. It is where trials happened. It is where they would try to solve the issues of the day. And the fool who does not understand God knows, like me in the midst of those men, if you open your mouth, things go poorly because you have nothing to offer. The fool without the wisdom of God cannot provide a blessing to their community to, in a real sense of the word. Now, here's the wonderful truth of the gospel. None of us can reach this kind of wisdom on our own. It is too high for all of us. Paul says in Romans that all have fallen short. All of us can strain on our tiptoes and reach with our arms and stand at the counter 24-7 in all of our effort trying to get there, but we cannot reach the glory that God himself has. Our own efforts are insufficient. And so the difference between the fool who has not and the wise man who has is not that the wise man can reach it and the fool can't. The difference is that the wise man realizes that wisdom has come down to him in Jesus Christ. And the fool refuses to acknowledge that. I love how James in the New Testament calls God's wisdom, wisdom from above. Language might seem silly to us, but prepositions are important. He doesn't say wisdom which is above. As if you now need to go and find and climb and work and pray and go to church enough so that you can gain that wisdom that saves you. It says wisdom from above, meaning that wisdom is moving. Wisdom is condescending. Jesus Christ has come down to us. The wisdom of God to embrace those who could never on their own embrace him. If you want this wisdom, the wisdom of God does not begin with your brilliance, but with your brokenness. You realize that we cannot reach what God has called us to reach. We cannot hold fast to the God who is infinite, and we cannot adequately love those around us. But Jesus has come down. He has come down to bring us to God. He has come down to fill us with wisdom so that we not only see God rightly, but we care for those who are around us. To be wise in scripture, to contribute to those around you, the requirement isn't to know everything. It is to know one thing, and that is the gospel. That is that there is a God, and it is not you. And you're far closer to earning God's disfavor than you are in your life of earning God's favor. 
Because God is perfect and we are not, we look at our works and we say, we can't do it. We are more like glory thieves who are stealing God's art. We are con men of massive uh, self-delusion and we steal worship from God and we ascribe it to ourselves, and we ascribe it to other things and each step shows our utter foolishness and knowing all of that, God the Father sent Christ the Son to pay the punishment of foolish, simple con men like ourselves so that we would first and foremost know God's wisdom. But more importantly, that we would know God through Jesus Christ. That we can trust him to be wise where we are weak. Him to be brilliant where we are broken. And us to be humble where he is wholly sufficient. This is the high level ideal of wisdom. Look at how Paul puts this in Colossians chapter two. Think of the contrast of what we have and what we lack in Proverbs and look at how Paul speaks of this in Colossians two verses eight through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. That is the fool, but here's this contrast, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you, that is those who have faith in Jesus Christ, have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. For those who confess faith in Jesus Christ and realize that he and he alone is the provision we need to be freed from our sins, we are filled with the wisdom of God now. You might not be able to, dis- to communicate the theological gaps between infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism, but if you know God through Jesus Christ, you know everything you need to love God and serve others. Here is the pleasant and precious riches of grace. You today have something to offer if you have Jesus Christ. And so here we see that God's wisdom through Jesus gives us two things. Strength, we see that in verse five. Counsel, we see that in verse six. Those two things are meant to be used to help others. This seems really simple in theory, but in the following verses, Solomon brings this wonderful ideal into the sometimes messy places of our life, into the often messy places of our church. Let's read this challenge in verses 10 through 12. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your own soul know it? And he, will he not repay man according to his work? And so here's our second point this morning where we see a conviction which moves us towards others. Solomon just showed us that when we are one to Jesus Christ through faith, we are given strength in the Holy Spirit. We are given counsel in the Holy Spirit. And now he says to you, to us, to we, how are you going to use that strength and wisdom given to you through the Holy Spirit? 
He warns of this day of adversity, he says, a day when your friends no longer, so my children um, have figured out that, that bodily noises are humorous. And the first time a parent realizes that, you giggle with them, and then it quickly begins to wear on you, and it's no longer humorous. <laughs> there are times where our friends and our family and our church members will so rejoice at those gifts we have in the Holy Spirit. But there are times where because of sinful tendencies in their heart, where they begin to become weary of those very things. In fact, they begin to find your ability to follow Jesus and your desire to help them to be offensive. And in that day, in that day, will you faint? That's what Solomon says to us. You see, God is not after the beauty muscles of sanctification. When he gives us wisdom, his desire is, is that it would, it would be functional for real life, even when it's difficult. It's easy to stand and admire your wisdom in a mirror, but what's difficult to do is to take your strength and your counsel, which God gives you as a grace through faith, and to move towards those who are stumbling to their own death. Proverbs often speaks of, when we talked about this, when it talks about justice and righteousness, of caring for those who are in physical distress, but we can assume here that he's speaking of people you know, perhaps even brothers and sisters in Christ who are leaving the path of wisdom and choosing the path of foolishness. He's warning of people who are not so much stumbling to the death by drinking arsenic or smoking or licking lead paint. He's speaking of those who are living in a way of sin, choosing what is foolish and dangerous and we've seen these two themes already in Proverbs. We've seen uh, the, the strange woman, the seductress who tempts and kills. We've seen those who are addicted to drunkenness, who stumble and stagger to their own death. These are words that we have grown used to thinking in terms of spiritual categories in the book of Proverbs. And these trials the trials of sin in the lives of others challenge your commitment to wisdom. How do you consider the strength of your faith? If someone were to ask you, how strong are you in your understanding of God, what metrics would you use to answer that question? Some might say, I've been a Christian for this amount of years. I have this much tenure in following Jesus. Some might say, well, I've abstained from all of those token sins that Proverbs has talked about. I'm not a glutton, I'm not a drunkard, I'm not an adulterer. I'm pretty good at this point. Some of us might look at our robust theological vocabulary and how many books we've read on the atonement or the incarnation or pneumatology. And we say, I know I'm pretty good at this point. But what here in Proverbs 24 is the test of your strength, your ability to care for your brother and sister who are being led astray by the false promise of sin. The test of your wisdom, of your strength and counsel, of the hope you have in Jesus Christ is caring for your neighbor even when it comes at great cost to oneself. 
And maybe at this point, you take up the hypothetical response that Solomon assumes. Look at Proverbs 24, verse 12. If you say, behold, we did not know this. We didn't know that God cared about how we rescue others. We didn't know that the test of our faith was not merely in an intellectual confirmation or in years gone by, but in love and wisdom in practice. You didn't know this, Solomon replies. Look at what he says. He says, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his works? He says, didn't know. Didn't know you should care for the vulnerable going off in sin. He's like, have you met God? Have you looked at your own story with sin? Has God not drawn near to those who fell away to sin? Has God not God incurred a cost of winning back people on the verge of death? For us who are in Jesus Christ, who see wisdom incarnate in Jesus Christ, don't we, aren't we rid of even more excuses? Don't we know clearly, without surprise, that this is exactly what God calls us to assess our faith in? Consider Jesus' parable in Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He's appealing to intellect. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and live. But he, desiring to justify himself, Man, that's how we always approach Jesus, isn't it? We are always seeking to justify ourselves. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, that is someone who is opposed to the Jews, not by nature a friend, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and he saw him and had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he gave out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus finishes his story and says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Or consider Jesus' critique of the scripture-quoting, law-keeping Pharisees in Matthew 23, verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their fingers. Skip down to verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. 
Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisees took knowledge or took comfort in their religious knowledge, but they were unwilling to even lift a finger to help those who were burdened by their own sin. Consider how God speaks through Jesus to the church, to us being right here today, immediately after it talks about, or immediately before it talks about church discipline, here is what we do to avoid this situation. Matthew 18, verses 10 through 14. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. But what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray. And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 who never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. In other words, if you want to do God's will, seek the lost. Go after the ones who go astray. You see, if God's wisdom, which we have defined wisdom throughout Proverbs as seeing the world through God's eyes, if God's wisdom wakes us up to the reality of sin and the devastating effect it has in our life, if God's wisdom shows us that it's not your perfection that counts, but your perseverance in relying on Christ who is perfect, then shouldn't we then by that same wisdom be motivated to save others who are wandering off to death? This commitment, this conviction is exactly what's behind church membership at Sovereign Hope. It's us saying to each other, we're gonna go. We're gonna come after you. We are not going to faint. We are not going to grow, going to grow weary. We are going to hold up what you once tasted and that is the wisdom which satisfies the house filled with good and pleasant riches. That is the grace of God in the church. In this church, we will always encounter people who have walked into a dangerous mess of sin. I will make a mess of my sin. You will make a mess of your sin. And the hope you have in moving towards others who are in that mess is that by God's grace, those others will also move towards you in your own mess. But there is a split-second reaction we often have to those who are in these dangerous places that Solomon talks about. That is, on one hand, we recoil for our own self-preservation, and we choose not to go. Or secondly, we lash out in a sort of self-righteous anger, as if that never could have been us. But the gospel gives us something better than fear and frustration. It gives us a conviction to move forward in truth and in love towards those who really need our help. And Solomon starts actually not with their truth. Their heart is not on display in Proverbs 24. Your heart is. He shows how serious this inactivity is in your own heart when he says, does not, you don't know this? Does not he who weighs your heart perceive it? Does not God know not only why you are inactive, or does he not only see that you are inactive, but he sees why you're inactive. He knows your fears. He knows what we'll see next week, perhaps that you are rejoicing in their misfortune. He knows where you doubt the gospel and where you exalt yourself. He knows your idol of comfort and peace. And then he goes on to say, 
does not he who sees it repay you according to your work? In other words, God doesn't just care about how you live in relationship with him. He cares how you live in relationship with others. Look at 1 John chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. We love because he first loved us. There's our relationship with God. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And the commandment we have from him, and this is the commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You see, if you've been around church, if you've been hurt by the church, if you know people who have been hurt by the church, you know that it's in this moment of outward reaching love that we often get accused of being judgmental and legalistic. And I can tell you, those things really happen. They really do. And yet, this kind of outward motion when bathed in the gospel is the furthest thing from that. Why? Because we're not viewing primarily their obedience as the issue. We're viewing our obedience as the issue that we are responsible to do this. God is responsible for them. We are responsible to love them and trust God with them. It is not rooted in an unfair standard that, well, if you can disobey, then who am I? It's rooted in I must obey. I get to obey no matter how hard and awkward this might be. We are called to care for others because we know not that they will only stand before God, but that you will stand before God. And that this outward movement of moving into dangerous places with the gospel of grace is exactly what Jesus died to give you strength and counsel for. But in the midst of this truth is also beautiful, wonderful love. Love for you. Look at what is in the middle of verse 12. I'm gonna read all of verse 12. Behold, if you say we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your own soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? So here's the reality of following Jesus as a broken person in a broken world. Oftentimes when we are called to pursue our sin, sinning, stumbling brother or sister in Christ, we are moving into harm's way to help them. It's no shock if a hot pot drops off the stove and you reach down to grab it, you get burned. We know that, and yet we do it. Moving with wisdom and love towards those who are living in sin, enslaved to a worldview that is rejecting what is good, might be extremely difficult, might be extremely nerve-wracking, and it might cause you great fear but look in the middle of verse 12. Does not he who keeps watch over your own soul know it? What is our conviction that allows us to move towards others even when hard and even dangerous? That God watches over your soul. 
That word can also be translated as guards your soul, maintains your soul. If the God of this world watches over us through Jesus Christ, and if nothing, we looked at this in Romans the the last couple weeks, if nothing in all the world can separate us from that love, for we have died with Christ and our life is now hidden with Christ in God, then nothing can stop us from moving forward in this love apart from the question of hope. But doesn't scripture hold up a history filled with broken people hoping in a big God from the midwives in Egypt risking their lives to save infants who were condemned to die, from Rahab the prostitute doing the same thing to save the Israelite spies, from Jonathan facing the disdain of his father to love the Lord's anointed in David, from Esther risking her life to save the whole of God's people in captivity, the most guarded you will ever be, the most secure you will ever find yourself in the arms of Jesus is when you are willing to entrust yourself to him when there is nothing else left to trust. And in that moment, we encounter the sufficient hold of Christ in our lives. So what does it look like for us to do this, for us to rescue and move? Well, just three quick points of application here. It can look like three things. Look like evangelism. That's sharing the gospel with those who are perishing. It can look like discipleship. That's helping others keep to the path of life in an encouraging and sometimes corrective way. And it looks like church discipline, which is what God calls the church to do immediately after Matthew 18, 10 through 14, where he says, call them back and warn them of the danger that they are in. And each of these are hard in their own way. But here's the thing. In God's church, where some people are weak, others are strong. Here is the counsel that makes us strong for war through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's here in looking at how difficult it is and seeing that God makes us strong and, and satisfied that Solomon takes what seems like a really harsh left turn in this text. Look at what follows. Proverbs 24, verses 13 through 14. My son, eat honey, for it is good. The drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. You know, it seems like an awkward transition, like Solomon is depressed and now Solomon's cheery. (laughs) What we've actually seen is that in light of God's wisdom for hard situations, God also nourishes us for the sake of those situations. Just as is always true in following Jesus Everything God demands from you in the gospel, he provides for you in the gospel. And this is our final point this morning. This is a comfort which gives us hope. In the 1996 cinematic masterpiece, Space Jam, a group of ragtag Looney Tunes are paired with Michael Jordan to play a basketball game for the sake of their souls against some much larger, very talented aliens called the Monstars. There's a point in the game where the Toon Squad is struggling, and so Bugs Bunny, in his wily ways, goes and creates Mike's secret stuff. It's this drink that supposedly gives Michael Jordan all of his skill, and he hands it out to the team, and sure enough, the team drinks Mike's secret stuff, and they start playing incredibly. But soon there comes a point where they realize this stuff was just water. And here's the wonder of what Solomon is talking about in this day of adversity. 
in the trial of your faith, when it seems too difficult, too costly, too dangerous to move towards those who are stumbling, God gives you secret stuff. But more than anything else, it is no placebo effect. It is real. It is sustaining. It is motivating. And even more, we can think of the God who not only created every molecule on this planet, but the God who is in control of all of our language. He could have chosen anything to communicate the sustaining and motivating power of his goodness. He could have said, if he lived in Missoula, eat kale, for it is high in nutrients and makes you strong. Boil your chicken. And eat plain chicken for it is lean in fat and high in protein and will not leave you disappointed. God could have chosen to communicate the effectiveness of his word to empower us in the midst of hardship in any sort of bland utilitarian way. But in God's merciful kindness to us, a call to faithfulness in God is not a call to what is bland, but what is beautiful. A call to something which is not bitter, but something which is sweet beyond our imagination. God's wisdom is honey. God's wisdom is exactly what we long for. At the end of a long day. I love Coke Zero. I was working at the building the other day and all I wanted was a Coke Zero. And so few stores actually have it on a fountain. And I found in God's merciful providence, the gas station closest to our new church building has a fountain of Coke Zero. And I went there and I sipped it and I was satisfied. Don't we often have something like that after a long day? But if we think about it, often when we get that object, doesn't it actually pacify us, dull us? The theologian from centuries past, Charles Hodges, says that that's what men look for in opiates and drugs and alcohol. They look for this satisfaction, but it doles you. But here is God's provision of honey, which motivates you. It satisfies you with exactly what you want, but instead of moving you to the couch to digest its sweetness, it brings you to the mission field to enjoy and taste its sweetness. And what is this wisdom that satisfies, sustains, and motivates us? It is the word of God. Look at Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. For the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Do you see how good this is? The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Consider Psalm Chapter 119, verses 102 and 104. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. What is it that changes our desire from the evil men in verse 2 to the desire of honey in verse 14? God's word that satisfies and moves us towards others. It's no secret that the American church in regards to discipleship and costly counsel has been in a decline for a lot of years. 
nominal Christianity, Christianity where people claim Christ but don't serve Christ, people who say they're walking the road of wisdom while living at the doorway of death has blown up. And part of the fact we're not good at discipleship and care is because we don't know our Bibles anymore. A recent survey came out that said even inside of Christianity, more people spend time reading social media than reading God's word. Here's how to be judgmental 101. Try to follow Jesus without knowing the Bible. It will inevitably happen. Because here's what happens. You either, one, don't care about anyone's eternal salvation because you don't even know about it. And that's apathy. And we don't like that, right? We don't like that sort of disingenuine relationship in our world. But two, if you do then realize that following Christianity does require some sort of change, but you haven't read your Bible to see what that change is, that means you're holding everybody else accountable to something which is not the gospel. And that's how we become legalistic and judgmental. It's not legalistic and judgmental to say, this is what God has for us. It's legalistic and judgmental to say, this is what I have for you. God's word shows us the goodness of his honey. To not know the honey of God's word is to err on subjectivism on one side and stoicism on the other. Those are two big words. They start with S's. It worked for me, but I'm going to explain that now for us, okay? On the subjectivism side, we hear often the creed, this is my truth. And those who champion this think that truth is only subjective. That if it is good for me, then it is true for me. It roots goodness exclusively in the individual's experience and not in anything on the outside or anything objective. Therefore, if someone who lives under this subjectivism camp encounters something from outside which is seen as a threat to goodness, it can by nature not be true. It is only false. Then there's stoicism that often runs rampant inside the church. Outside the church, we're prone to subjectivism. Inside the church, we're prone to stoicism. And this group correctly places the sphere of objective truth inside of God's word. But they fail to acknowledge that this objective truth is experientially good. What is the first and greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Stoics look at the first commandment and say, what is the first and greatest commandment? To obey your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now here's the thing. Love produces obedience, but if you invert those, you miss out on all of the goodness of it. You see, on one hand, in the subjectivist camp, they disconnect truth from goodness. And then in the stoicism camp, they disconnect goodness from truth. But in God's honey, it is good truth for you. It is objectively exactly what you need, but experientially, it is exactly what you want. I remember there was a seminary professor of mine who was invited to come and lecture on two hot-button issues in Christianity, on sex and gender roles. And one guy who was brought into lecture with him was counseling um, this, this church body. And he kind of said, he said, you know what, this is what God's word said. I wish it was another way, but we have to follow God's word. He's not subjectivist. He's not saying, you know, we can do what we want. It's subjective. He's taking the stoic camp. God said it. We got to live with it. Sorry. And my professor said, no. We do not have joy despite God's truth. We have joy because of God's truth. 
This is for our good that God would teach us what it means to be male and female, that God would give instructions to his church, which are for its good, not for its harm. God's word is true and good. It is honey, which is sweet, but also sustaining, and we need it. Twice to two different churches, Paul speaks to the church in Galatia and the church in Thessalonica, And he's encouraging them to love one another, to practice this rescuing. And in each, he says, do not grow weary of doing good. What can we take from that? We know the ideal. In practice, it's wearisome. In practice, it's difficult. So how do we not grow weary? Proverbs 24 comes. Eat God's honey. Two points in closing. First, read God's word. We started a Bible reading plan in January. We are finishing the Old Testament on August 24th. If you want to pick up in the New Testament, it's not that the Old Testament is not God's word to us, but sometimes it's difficult to read and we need help. If you want the easy, low-hanging fruit, we're starting in Matthew on August 24th. Come and join reading with us. Join us on our Wednesday Bible study. You can find the Bible reading plan online. You could download the Read Scripture app and follow along with us. And we read God's word because God's word is where he reveals himself. I can learn a lot from my wife from going and talking to my mother-in-law. I can learn more from my wife from taking her on a date. That's what God's word is. It's going to the source. It's hard to trust the goodness of something you don't know. If you find yourself struggling to follow God, it could be because you don't know God as God wants you to know him. That's not a burden when you realize that God wants you to know him. And he's given you his words to know him. And reading the Bible can be difficult at times. There are parts of the Bible that are difficult for me to understand. But here's the beauty of Psalm 14, or Proverbs 24. Psalm 14 is probably good too. It's beautiful. Um, even the drippings of the honeycomb are satisfying to your soul. You'll get to the honeycomb. You will grow in your ability to read the Bible, but even in the drippings, it is sufficient for you. The best way to read your Bible is to read the Bible. I wonder how many of us don't read because we are so enslaved to fear and pride. We don't read because we fear what we don't know. And we think that if I don't know it and I don't open it, then I'm not going to be convicted of my ignorance. But God's word invites us as a friend to grow and to learn. And more importantly, we don't read alone. Yeah, the church is great. But the Holy Spirit lives in scripture and it lives in you like two magnets tugging each other together. Do you tug together? You pull together? Prepositions? Um, Those aren't prepositions, those are verbs. Anyway, uh, something happens between those things. And and Augustine, an, an early church theologian, he said this. He said, the more difficult passages in scripture stimulate your appetite by their weight. It makes you realize there's something more. There's something meaty. But sometimes it's frustrating. But then he says, it's the simpler passages in scripture which satisfy your hunger with their clarity. The Bible is sufficient to meet us in our need. The more we read God's word, the more we see what he requires of us, the more we see how Jesus has given us everything that's required of us, and the more we can give to to others. But secondly, not only are we to read God's word, but we are to apply it. There are some things that when we think of, we think of both taste and smell. I love coffee. I can't taste coffee without thinking of the smell of coffee. 
If you love barbecue, you can't not think of the smell of smoked meats. If you love bread, you know when you walk into a house that's baking or into a bakery, you can taste it, but you smell it. When we think of honey, we think exclusively in terms of its taste. I often say that many of us fall into a category of Food Network Christianity. On the Food Network, you can watch world-class chefs using high-quality ingredients. And you can even get a world-class host who can come and use his words to describe to you the flavor of everything he's tasting. But the reality is, while you might be able to understand the ideals and concepts of Scripture by what you see and hear, Food Network viewers never taste the food. To taste the food, you have to get off the couch, drive to the restaurant, and do the work of paying for it. So too, in reading God's word, it means little if you're unwilling to apply it. You might be able to tell others of God's sweet provision. No Christian is gonna say, yeah, the Bible's all right. Or say, the Bible's good, it's honey, it's sweet. But are you denying yourself its sweetness by refusing to take God at his word? By refusing to turn away from sin and find Christ satisfying? By choosing to move towards that which is dangerous and realizing that Christ is your delight? By choosing to know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God? Do you taste the honey? Brothers and sisters, God is inviting us in, not into an experiment, but into a sweet encounter with a real goodness. Into a sweet relationship with a God who is all satisfying. How will you move out towards others? You will move out when you realize that this is worth all of it. How will you call others back when you can say, I know it. I have tasted its goodness And here it is for you in Jesus, if you would just come and taste. So today, this afternoon, this week, as a church, let us eat God's honey for the sake of our own worship, but also that we might be able to share with others the goodness of God, and in so doing, as the Lord wills, rescue those being taken away to death. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have given us taste buds, You have given us honey in the gospel. Give us the conviction to eat. Lord, help us to not just be hearers of your word, but doers of it, so that we might be of greatest benefit to those who are around us. Let's not be caught off guard when we recoil in fear or we begin to judge in ways that are not biblical when we see sin in the lives of others, but may we in grace and truth realize that the sweetness that was good for us is sweetness good enough for them. That if Christ came down for me, Christ has come down for you. Lord, I pray that our church is distinct, that we understand the messiness and the brokenness of life in a community of people who are saved but not yet perfected. But I pray that in the midst of this, in this day of adversity, that we would not faint We rely wholeheartedly on you. We pray this in your name. Amen.